0: All right, so we're gonna be in Psalm two. Last week, uh, Dad did Psalm one. Uh, We won't uh, go in order the whole time, Uh, but these two definitely go together. And uh, so that's one reason why I wanted to to try to make it through today because it just fits so well. Um, We'll go back and and look at at Psalm one in a moment. I'll let you play with this little um, exercise. Many people believe that originally Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 were all one Psalm, which I did not know that. Uh, I learned that today. Um, Psalm 2 is um, quoted uh, several times. Uh, It is considered, uh, in the New Testament that is, it's quoted several times in the New Testament. It's considered a messianic Psalm. Uh, And we'll see why that is the case. One of the places where it's quoted, I'll just turn briefly over to Acts chapter 13. You don't need to turn there. This is just to make one little point. Um, Acts chapter 13 says, uh, this is he who has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus as also it is written in the second Psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, I don't know that I had ever um, heard the New Testament refer to a place in the Old Testament um, by number. You know, we, uh, most of the uh, chapters and verses and everything that are in our Bibles um, came way, way later. Uh, but here um, uh, it says uh, as it is written in the second Psalm. Now what, I, what actually happened was some of the oldest texts regarding Acts say, as it's written in the first Psalm. And that's some of the evidence that um, is used to say that, that the first and second Psalm uh, were designed to be together. <clears throat> we'll look at some internal evidences based on the wordings that are used um, as well. So just as we go through this, um, Think about how is it, although it, it, it stands alone and, and it, it, it's, it has a message all its own, but knowing what we looked at last week, see if you can think of how it might relate as a package and then we'll go into that. All right, Psalm chapter two, I'm sorry, Psalm two, uh, verse one. It says, why did the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Make a couple comments about the structure of this Psalm. Those were three verses. Uh, there are 12 verses in this Psalm. Uh, very conveniently, uh, four sets of three. Uh, we just ran the first set. And you'll notice that each uh, set uh, seems to shift who is speaking. So the writer basically uh, puts uh, the nations um, in one voice as if they are saying what's in the first three verses. We'll see that change to more of a narrator role in the second set. Then we have a first person uh, set of verses of seven through nine, and then uh, the last three uh, more of a a narrator, again, um, kind of explaining and exhorting uh, people to take heart uh, about what has just been said. So this is interesting. It says, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Um, The peoples, that word, often referred to uh, the people of Israel. The nations, that word, typically was, um, uh, was designed to include the whole world, everyone else. So here it's interesting. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Uh, so, uh, so it's interesting. Just kind of keep that in the back of your mind. So the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. Uh, in my uh, version of the Bible, anointed is capitalized. Uh, the Hebrew word here is the word Messiah. Uh, it's the word where we get the word Messiah. Now, of course. Um, uh, anyone who you know receive the anointing you could call the anointed one um, but as we go through this you will notice some language um, especially in the third set of verses verses seven through 9 that seem to refer to a king of way greater <coughs> power of way greater uh, influence and Exaltation than anyone on earth. And for that reason, this is considered to be referring to the Messiah. So when it says uh, all these people are raging against the Lord's anointed, uh, it's as if the whole world is against what God has in store. And It does feel that way sometimes, doesn't it? We'll come back to some of this. Verse four, he who sits in the heavens laughs. Did you know God laughs? This is the only place in the Bible where we hear about God laughing. Um, It's not a good laugh. It's uh, it's a laugh of um, derision. It's a laugh of, yeah, what are you thinking? He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. This is referring to God's opinion of all these nations that are, setting their sights on breaking down what the Lord has in store. Uh, Yeah, God doesn't think much of that. It says, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. To put yourself back in the day, there wasn't the concept of just one God except in Israel. Everybody else had lots of gods, and they were considered somewhat local gods. So if, if someone traveled from one locale to another, it would be kind of commonplace that they might just start worshiping whatever the, the local god was in a new place. Um, There's probably a sports team analogy there somewhere where some people might move and adopt a new team if they were better than their old team. Uh, But some people, you know, bless their hearts, if if you're a Cubs fan, you're probably just always going to be a Cubs fan, uh, no matter how good they are. So which team you were pulling for, which set of idols you were pulling for, that was kind of what was going on back then. But here God's saying, no, I'm not a local God. I am not like your other gods. In fact, all of the other gods, if they were to gang up on me, I laugh at that. I am not a local God. I am way above all that. I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Verse seven, now we have um, a king speaking. Perhaps David is speaking here. I will tell the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. 2 Samuel 7 is where we can read of God's covenant with David. And there's a reference here in verse 7 of Psalm 2 that refers back to the Davidic covenant. So in 2 Samuel 7, I'll pick up with verse 14 says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This, you are my son today, I've begotten you most people feel harkens back to here in 2 Samuel 7 14 where it says I'll be a father to him and he'll be my son of course as the story unfolds in 2 Samuel you see it specifically spoken to David in Psalm we have it put We have this concept of you are my son. Today, I've begotten you. We have this declaration put into a package surrounded by statements that seem way bigger than David. Look what we just read. I will make the nations your heritage. Okay, this goes even beyond what he told David because now the nations, remember, that's the whole world and the ends of your, the earth, your possession, even David or even Solomon, in all their great influence, their influence didn't extend to the ends of the earth, but there's gonna come someone, a son who's going to fulfill all this. So as it unfolds through time, we have the Davidic covenant, we have King David, and then we have this language that seems even more than David, And that's why in the New Testament, it can be referred back, and now it starts to make sense to everyone. Now it says, oh, this is where it talks about God's anointed. This is where we talk about an even better David. And now you can start to see it building why we think this is a psalm about the Messiah. Verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. They started this. They're the ones that are plotting together. They are the ones that are setting their sights against God. God says, I'm above all that. I am the most powerful. I am literally in charge. My ways are going to succeed. And he basically teaches them in verse 10, here's what you need to do if you want to get on board with the winning team. Verse 10, now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So kings, rulers, people of the earth, nations of the earth, if you want to get on God's team, come Pay homage, connect with the sun. It says kiss the sun. That is still, of course, our message. If we want to be on God's team, it's through the sun. Now let's connect Psalm 1 and 2 a little bit. The big connectors that started and ended is the word blessed. Some may have said uh, happy. Happy. Um, Verse one of Psalm one says, blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Psalm 212 said, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Same word. That's how they brought things together by using basically words almost like as a, you know, a paragraph symbol or, you know, all the different types of punctuation we do. The rest of verse one, it says, Blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. This word scoffers is the same word used of God in chapter two, verse four, when he says he laughs at their plans. He scoffs at their plans. My my, uh, version, ESV, translates it in derision, that God holds them in derision, but it's the same word that's translated scoffers in Psalm 1.1 look at the other comparison now bear in mind Psalm 1 as we saw was comparing God's way versus the, basically the unrighteous way if you think about it Psalm 1 you can look at it on kind of a personal level Psalm 2 is somewhat saying the same thing on a more global level Verse two, it says, "But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night." This word "meditates" is the same word in Psalm two, verse one, says, "The people's plot in vain." This meditation, this planning, this plotting—it's the same word. Psalm one six: For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. But the way of the wicked will perish. So in proximity, you have this concept of the way of the righteous, that there is a, is there, there is a particular way of living, a way of life, uh, something that's deeply ingrained. It's part of who you are. It's how you go through your day. <clears throat> it's not something that you're faking. It's, it's an integral part of who you are compared with the, perish, with the, the perishing. Look at the end of Psalm 2. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. If you're in the wrong way, you're going to perish. If you're in the right way, you're going to flourish. So between those kind of internal mirror images of each other, uh, the reference there in Acts 13, um, where the oldest manuscripts talk about uh, Psalm 1, uh, it really does start to fit that these are together. Um, psalm 1 and 2 uh, are really together an introduction to the whole rest of the, of the book. And so it's, it's really neat that early on we see uh, this foreshadowing of what's going to come with respect to Jesus. I want to look at a couple passages where this psalm is quoted. So you can turn to Acts chapter 4. While you're turning there, I'll give you the background. Of course, we know in Acts, uh, we referred to it at Easter when we talked about uh, Peter's big sermon and how he quoted Psalm 16. In Acts chapter 4, you know, thousands of people have come to the Lord. Peter has preached this great sermon uh, and so forth. And in verse 4, I'm sorry, chapter 4, verse 1, it says, And as they were speaking to the people... The priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. They were very annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day. So they're put in jail uh, for for preaching and and so forth. Um, Flip over to verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. They were uneducated, quote, unquote, common men, but they had been touched by the Holy Spirit. And as a result, they were not speaking like fishermen that didn't know much. They saw fruit happening. Ultimately, they're released. So go down to verse 23. It says, when they were released... They went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, so this is a prayer, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, listen to this, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. So there's a lot in this preamble. It's basically saying... um, He's, he's fixing a quote Psalm 2. So basically, he's saying David wrote Psalm 2, and, and by extension, we know Psalm 1 and 2. And interestingly, it says David was guided by the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit doesn't show up a whole lot in the Old Testament, at least not by name. But here we have these disciples, you know, They themselves are being taught by the Holy Spirit and now things are being revealed to them. And so they can now put it all together and said, David said this through the Holy Spirit. So that's where we are. Verse 25, Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord, excuse me, and against his anointed. That whole first section, they bring it up. And they say, and now they see, they apply it to what has happened to Jesus. Verse 27, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you both anointed, I'm sorry, whom you anointed, that they're still praying to God, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, Remember, it was the nations and the peoples and that here we are, the nations, that's the Gentiles, the rulers, there's Pontius Pilate and the peoples. Remember, Herod was a Jew, a corrupt Jew who was certainly in cahoots with the Romans, but they're all represented just as was predicted In Psalm chapter 2, or Psalm 2, when David was speaking through the Holy Spirit. Verse 29: And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, and so forth. In other words, because they could see this come to fruition, what was predicted in Psalm 2. Psalm 2 also tells them how it's going to turn out. Psalm 2 now tells them you can have confidence because you can take refuge because you've connected with the Son. It all comes together. A couple other places I'll point out. And my voice is telling me we may have a short lesson. (laughs) This is so good. Um, so Hebrews mentions this uh, a couple times, um, by reference, um, Hebrews one, five, I will be a father to him and he shall be to me a son going all the way back to the Davidic covenant. Um, there's also an interesting passage in revelation chapter two. course we know in the first three chapters of revelation uh, is where we have the letters to all the different churches this particular section beginning in verse 18 of chapter 2 is to the church at Thyatira Mm -hmm. and uh, there's always a good and a bad for most of the churches there were a couple churches that were all bad and a couple churches that were all good the other three was a mixed bag including this church Verse 19 says, I know your works, your love and your faith and your servants and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. But there's a Jezebel there involved. And go on down. Verse 25, it says, hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and keeps my work until the end, to him will I give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earth pots are broken in pieces even as I myself have received authority from my father. This goes all the way back to Psalm 2 about ruling with iron, breaking up uh, the pottery, uh, saying basically there is someone, there is Jesus who has the power to put all these nations in line. He's gonna rule. He's gonna judge. He's the one that's in charge. He's the one that you need to be accountable to. And for that reason, you need to get rid of this Jezebel situation. So, Psalm two, a messianic psalm, one that that looks forward. Um, I think there is lots of room for personal application here. Um, the king, it was, you know, the psalms. We've seen it here. We've seen it other ways. They're they're kind of taken in three settings. There's how it was written, uh, or why it was originally written. Uh, some occasion, perhaps, the coronation of the king. So there was a standalone usage of the psalm. Then there is how is a psalm in the context of the other psalms? And that's where people look at Psalm 1 and 2 as a great introduction, comparing the way of the righteous with the way of the wicked. Then the third usage of the psalms is how... Does the rest of the Bible use a psalm? How do we see that being used in the New Testament? And then, of course, we could add a fourth application for that. And then what does that mean to us? And, you know, it's easy to think about how the world seems to be against all things related to the Lord these days. Um, That... (coughs) You know, it can it can be defeating. It can be depressing. It can it can shake your faith. Even you know all the stuff that seems to be going bad. Things seem very different than they were a generation ago. Um, you know, even if you know, you can look into the future with either a very pessimistic eye, or a very optimistic eye. But even looking to the future with with great optimism it's not the same as it probably would have looked like 30 or 40 years ago. Uh, there are a lot of things out there to worry about. Um, but we can take confidence that no matter how many nations seems to be, seem to be going against the things of God, God's got this. He laughs at this. He scoffs at this. And the only way people are going to ever be on the winning team is if they're on God's team through the sun. And it's so neat to me how we see that message brought all the way through. And we know Jesus saw this, you know, that passage in the last chapter of Luke on the road to Emmaus when it says, Jesus took them all the way back, talking about Moses and including the Psalms and the prophets. He told these travelers about himself and he could look back and say, here's how I've been showing up this whole time. And uh, and it's just great um, encouragement for us that we can take refuge in the God who's bigger than the nations, bigger than the peoples, bigger than the governments, bigger than all that. And we just have to be on his team. I'll stop there. Anybody else want to add anything?